good afternoon um, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at Cato and I'm also uh, the editor of humanprogress.org. Uh, today I'm pleased to welcome to the Cato Institute the authors of a new book, Making Africa Work, a Handbook. Uh, President Obasanjo unfortunately had to leave for the UN General Assembly meeting in New York. Um, but uh, he sends his regards and a video which shall be played momentarily. Um, but his three co-authors are here with us uh, to discuss what they have identified as Sub-Saharan Africa's three interrelated problems or challenges. First, Africa's population will double to over two billion by mid-century. To give you a sense of this monumental demographic development, uh, the United Nations estimates that by 2050, Nigeria will have more people than the United States, close to 400 million. Second, by mid-century, over 50% of Africans will be living in cities. And uh, this group of mostly young people will be connected with each other and with the rest of the world uh, via the internet and mobile devices. Third, their expectations will change. They will expect to accomplish as much in their lives as people elsewhere in the world, and they, they, will, they will demand better treatment from their governments. Properly harnessed, Africa's youth could be a force for economic growth and political change, which is to say democratization. But without economic growth and jobs, Africa's demogra demographic expansion could prove to be a political and social catastrophe. As the authors of the handbook argue, old systems of patronage and of muddling through will no longer work. If African leaders want to remain in power, they will have to do more to enable high economic growth rates. Making Africa works, work aims to ensure that uh, African growth is based on more than just export of commodities and that it creates jobs on the continent. To save time uh, for the author's presentations and for the video and also for the Q&A, you can pick up the uh, speaker's bios outside of the Hayek Auditorium and I hope that you will also uh, buy a copy of the book. Uh, but uh, following the uh, video, our first speaker will be Greg Mills, uh, who directs the Johannesburg-based uh, Brenthurst Foundation. He will be followed by Jeff Herbst, uh, who's just finished uh, his tenure as president and CEO of the museum in Washington, DC, and uh, was previously president of the Colgate University. And last but not least, we will hear from Major General Dickie Davis, who is the special advisor at Brenthurst Foundation and managing director of Nant Enterprises. So before I hand over the podium to Greg, uh, join me in watching a short video contribution from President Obasanja. Please accept my apologies for not being able to be with you on this very important occasion. Um, it is due to circumstances beyond my control. But all the same, all the same, I'm with you in spirit. And I want to share 
Well, I will start, first of all, in all sincerity, with leadership. For me, leadership is the key. But I'm not talking of leadership at the political level. Uh, that, of course, is very uh, important. But leadership at all levels and in all areas. For people talk of uh, PPP, uh, public, private uh, sector. But for me, leadership is in all sectors. Even civil society um, is very, very important. All hands must be on deck. That's number one. Number two, we must then touch what is it that if we are able to do, it will have uh, implications on other areas. For me, energy is very, very important. If we get energy right, it will have implications for industry and manufacturing. It will have implications for food and agribusiness. It will have implications for technology. It will have implication for hospitality and tourism. Now, energy is very, very important. And three, um, I take energy out of the, 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 the complex issue of infrastructure. And here I'm talking of transportation, communication, uh, water, uh, sanitation, all aspects of infrastructure. That must be there. Now, if we get these three or four things right, the fourth one, you ask for three, I will make, I will add a fourth one, which I will call food, nutrition, and agribusiness. <clears throat> If we get these four right, leadership, uh, energy, uh, and the infrastructure, food, uh, nutrition, and agribusiness, um, I think we are on the way to getting uh, uh, Africa right. But I don't want to underplay demography. Uh, we cannot be increasing and doubling our population every 15 to 18 years and think that there's no problem. There will be problem. A country like Niger Republic will be going by a factor of 20 from independence to 2050. Now there's no, no way you can continue to do that without a repercussion. So these are very important. The 
book is not about the past. The book is about the future, immediate future, and middle-term or mid-term future. We are looking yeah, up to the year 2020, um, uh, 2050 rather, <clears throat> about. If by the year 2050, Africa is not on the way to making it, then Africa will not make it by the end of this century. That is the sort of uh, time uh, uh, scale that we are looking at. And it's, the idea is not blame gaming. Uh, so, 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 so what was wrong last time in this country? We know that Africa is not where it should be. Whichever country you, uh, you, you look at, but we believe that, that African, Africa can be where it should be. What can we do today to place Africa where it should be by the year 2050? Only 35 years from now, Africa's population will be doubled. Nigeria, for instance, which is about 200 million today, will be about 407 million 2050. Now, what are we going to do? How do we get food for all this? Their healthcare, their education, their empowerment, skill, accommodation, employment. And if we do not look forward and do what we should do today, tomorrow will be on top of us and we will have no answer. I would say today, today's leaders must realize that the problem will not go away. They have to do something about it. And urgently. It's not a question of, well, um, let us wait. That's number one. Two, there are measures that they have to take, reforms and changes that they have to bring about. They, some of them will have to be unpopular, unpopular, because leading in a situation like this is not a popular a popularity competition. It is doing what is right and having the courage, the fortitude, the uh, determination to do it and get it done. Some of the people you, who will benefit from it will not even understand it. They may even be against it. It's only when the results start to come that they will realize that, oh yes, this has been in our interest. This is my experience, both in peace and in war. Enjoy the talk and I leave you in good hands of my colleagues and collaborators. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's very good to be with you here today. Thank you very much, Marion, to you and the, your colleagues at the Cato uh, Institute for hosting us at this event. Um, the Brentos Foundation was established 12 years ago by the Oppenheimer family to give something back to the African continent 
uh, to try and help to identify global and African best practice, to try and adapt it or adopt it to African circumstances in the search for greater growth uh, and the conditions which would lead to, to a, a greater number of jobs uh, across the African continent. We've learned a great number of lessons in the process. We've learned about what other countries have done, what African countries have done. Uh, we've learned about the way in which African governments have responded to piece, pieces of advice. And because of all that, over the last dozen years, we thought it would be a useful exercise if we laid down some of these learnings, uh, both in terms of what we've learned from other countries, but also in terms of what we've learned in the advisory business which we're in uh, from African countries uh, in this book which we're presenting today, Making Africa Work. Of course, it's not just because we wanted to share the lessons that we have learned and learned from others that we've done this book. It's also, as the President indicated, because of what's happening on the African continent itself and what Marion has referred to, this great demographic change that is underway in Africa as we move to double the continent's population between now and 2050. I'm not going to speak for long. I'm going to leave the thrust of what the book contains to my colleague, uh, Jeffrey Herbst. But I want to highlight for you six different findings of the book in terms of how we see uh, the need to end the business-as-usual approach, which has led us to this environment of too low economic growth and too lower growth in terms of job creation, and then to highlight as a way of introduction to what Jeffrey has to say some six big questions or tensions that are inherent in, in any analysis of Africa's current situation. What does ending business as usual mean in an African context in order to be able to provide a higher growth future? The first condition that we explain in the book is the need what my colleague Tendai Biti, the former finance minister of Zimbabwe, refers to as the imperative for macro hygiene. In other words, that you need, put differently, the macroeconomic fundamentals of tight fiscal conditions, low inflation, uh, for example, tight monetary policy to be in place. We don't deviate from that recommendation. The second recommendation is the importance of constitutionalism, of the importance to sticking to what is written in constitutions, and in particular, thirdly, the importance of adhering to the rule of law. Adherence to the rule of law is part and parcel of attracting investors, whether they be foreign or local, in the, and in the, their requirement to seek recourse from institutions. The absence of this aspect may well explain why Sub-Saharan Africa has done so poorly at attracting investment over the past several decades. For example, last year, out of the 1.75 trillion US dollars in foreign direct investment which flowed around the world, Sub-Saharan Africa attracted about 45 billion US dollars of a, of a, compared to, for example, the 450 billion US dollars which flowed into Asia. The fourth aspect is the importance of providing sufficient democratic space within any economy. One of the more controversial aspects of this book, and this was urged by a review process that we undertook of the original manuscript, is we show that democracy and development are indivisible, at least in terms of growth, not just in terms of values. 
We disaggregated the last 25 years of African economic experience, and we show that free countries, as defined by Freedom House, perform much better than the unfree or partly free categories. And the importance then of supporting democracy, whether it be by domestic or by foreign institutions, is a critical part of ending the business as usual approach. Fifth, the importance of policy, I think goes without saying. I presented a book called Why Africa is Poor Here at Cato some seven years ago, and that book was all about the importance of policy in changing the trajectory of African countries. This book carefully disaggregates policy sector by sector, differenti differentiates countries across Africa, and shows that improving policy can have, as is evident from African as well as other examples, a considerable benefit. And the sixth component of changing the trajectory of African countries is the importance of leadership, as the president indicated, in making the right decisions. It's not just decisions about the conditions to inspire greater growth and create more jobs. It's also about providing a sense of location, of vision in that society. We were reminded by a launch that we did in Tunis about a week ago, because there's a French edition of this book, as well as an Arabic edition. I know Marion said he's going to read it later on today. Um, that's a joke. Um, uh, when we launched the Arabic edition in Tunis, we were reminded by one of the people in the audience of the importance of providing the sense of location, about the sense of journey, about a sense of destiny, which goes beyond just the statistical empirical indicators of growth, inflation, fiscal aspects, uh, and job creation. So there you have it. Macro, constitutionalism, rule of law, democracy, policy, and leadership. Well, that's a lot easier said, of course, than done, because there are, again, six, and you, I'm sure could identify more, very big questions or tensions inherent in the process of reform that we recommend in this volume, and then I know that Jeff is going to speak to some of these points in the moment. The first of these tensions is the tension between short-term political imperatives or impulses and the long-term advantages to reform. How do you convince domestic constituencies, particularly those in government, to manage uh, um, the short-term political fallout over often painful processes of reform? The second is understanding what it is that the state should be doing and what the private sector should be allowed to do. This is a tension inherent in many African circumstances, which is largely, and I speak, speak very much as a South African in this regard, in fact, not only as a South African, I should say, um, is unresolved across many African circumstances. It's allowing sufficient space and getting the state out of certain areas is crucial in this process of reform. Thirdly, there's a tension in terms of sequencing. When do, do political reforms, reforms from authoritarian to more democratic systems of government, march alongside economic reforms or even reforms in the security sector? Which comes first? We would argue that these have to march more or less in lockstep throughout society. A fourth tension is this question of democracy versus authoritarian government. Are there alternatives in this regard? Uh, or is this a, a, an open and shut uh, case and question? And fifthly, how do you define success? Uh, do you define success 
in economic terms? Do you, do you, how do you define success uh, uh, in economic terms versus uh, political success in terms of values, in terms of, of the role of people within societies? And then six, how do you support change from outside? What is the role of donors in this process? A particular debate, of course, pertinent to Washington. How do you define success? Uh, what are the conditions for success in terms of the metrics uh, as well as, uh, as the most likely conditions that will lead to success in these environments? We would argue that we are more persuaded by domestic ownership uh, and foreigners coming in to reinforce uh, do domestic uh, reform processes rather than those that are imposed from outside. So this book covers a large swath of territory, ladies and gentlemen. It covers uh, different sectors uh, in African uh, economic, uh, in the African economic landscape. It differentiates across countries. It disaggregates across sectors, mining, tourism, services, banking, technology, urbanization, uh, uh, agriculture, and so on, in trying to find some of the answers to some of these big questions, these big components, and resolve some of these big tensions in African development. Without further ado, then, let me hand over to my colleague, Jeffrey Herbst. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Greg. Pleasure to be back at Cato. Uh, pleasure to be talking about this book and the important issues uh, that we hope to discuss, not only with you, but that we've been discussing uh, with people across Africa. Uh, this book is unapologi unapologetically directed towards African leadership. Our analysis was that another book just discussing in general terms African, African political economy issues was not necessary. Uh, and we've taken a very different tact. Uh, you'll see once you uh, start reading the book, which I know you'll do tonight, uh, that uh, in each of the chapters, uh, which focus on a large number of sectors, uh, we give the recommendations first, uh, rather than the academic enterprise, which I might be more accustomed to, of building up to an elaborate argument and then presenting our conclusions in the very last paragraph. Uh, and then the conclusion is really a compendium of our different recommendations so that they can be accessible as possible to African leaders. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time getting the book published in Africa so it's as inexpensive as possible and launching it across Africa so that it's accessible to as many leaders as possible. I think we're at an interesting moment in terms of African political economy. If I could make some gross generalizations about Africa's growth history uh, since the age of independence began in the early 1960s, uh, the first period was of relatively significant per capita growth between roughly uh, 1963 and 1976 with relatively robust uh, raw material prices and the exit from colonialism provided a certain boom. Then there was a long period across the continent, 48 different stories granted, but as a generalization, it holds true. Between roughly 1976, when continental per capita income hit a high, and 1994, when there was a long period of per capita decline, so-called lost generation, uh, due to collapse of raw material prices and the accumulating effect of poor governance across the continent. Around 1994, we saw a turnaround as African countries began to make difficult governance decisions. Uh, international markets began to perk up. 
China began to be an important player on the international economy, uh, and per capita income began to rise. However, it took another 10 years, roughly. Again, individual national stories are different, but the trajectories hardly vary. It took between 1994 and 2004 to make up for the lost time uh, of the previous period of decline, so that only in 2004 did continental per capita incomes hit the level they had been in in 1976. Then between 2004 and 2015, uh, there was positive per capita growth uh, fueled by very high raw material prices driven in good part by China uh, and by significant improvements in governance across the continent. Since 2015, roughly, however, we've seen on a continental per capita basis flat incomes, arguably a decline depending on how you measure it, last year and this year, and the fund is projecting, at best, a smidgen of a per capita improvement next year, with roughly one-third of the countries uh, seeing a per capita decline in income. Uh, and I think it's clear that the so-called super cycle of commodity prices is over. Uh, raw material prices um, may rise, may fall, probably won't hit the prices we have saw before. The notion, for instance, that oil is going to be at $100 a barrel seems far-fetched for the foreseeable future. And we haven't seen the sustained governance efforts uh, that would really take African countries up to the next level. So we're at an important moment, uh, not only because the short-term growth prospects look difficult, but also because of the demography. Uh, as was said several times, uh, we're greatly concerned about what we see as the most important story in Africa, which is the inevitable doubling of the population between now and 2050 in almost all countries, so that, for instance, Nigeria will have 400 million people. That's going to happen. Uh, the mother of the 400th millionth Nigerian has probably already been born. Um, it might be slowed down a little bit uh, by uh, birth control and other measures, uh, but the demographic momentum is such that that doubling is going to happen, if not in 2050, soon thereafter. In some countries, Niger example, it's going to happen before then. We see this important for two reasons, one empirical and one in terms of the architecture of the book. Empirically, it's the most important thing going on, um, that it is both a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous challenge. As was said, if Africa, which will, become, which will be the only continent between now and 2050 that will become younger, every other continent becomes older due to low birth rates and rising life expectancy. But if Africa, as the only continent that becomes younger, is able to provide young people with jobs, they'll provide the energy, entrepreneurship, ability to experiment with technology that could be really an important dynamic. If all those young people, or many of them, who will be overwhelmingly in the cities have disappointing economic futures, then as we saw in the Arab Spring, they will be a source of potential political instability uh, for their countries in the foreseeable future. So we're not doom and gloom. We're not Afro-pessimists. We see this as an opportunity or a challenge, we'd like African countries to seize the opportunity. It's also important for the argument of the book. The basic problem with the reforms that we're arguing for, most of which are uh, well uh, grounded in the literature and supported by important case studies, 
is that they're difficult and they're costly. Some cost money, but more importantly, uh, there's a cost in political capital because they require, as Greg said, for leaders to do things very differently and to alienate some of the constituencies that brought those leaders to power and sustain them in power through patronage networks. In return, leaders get to address problems and see results which will probably only be obvious beyond the horizon of their tenure, whether it's defined as a term in office, two terms in office, or however long they see in power. But to address the problem which is currently around the corner, uh, that big demographic bulge by 2050, leaders have to act now. But we don't, uh, we don't hide the fact that the real job gains and the like, if they do all these difficult things, won't take a few years. Why should leaders do this? And we've been asked this across the continent. And we argue that the demography is what's changed. The truth is that for the first generation of African leaders, and for many until now, the costs of economic failure have not been significant in terms of security of tenure in office. Many of the first generation of African leaders uh, manage their economies extremely poorly and stayed in office 20, 25 years until they exited peacefully or were overthrown at the very end. Uh, and even now, uh, in the age of elections, we don't see that economic failure per se is correlated very highly uh, with how long leaders stay in power and don't often see economic issues even being debated significantly in national elections, although that's a great issue facing almost all African countries. What we're saying is the demography changes this for leaders, that the cost of failure from now on will be much more significant in terms of their own personal uh, tenure in office, as well as the political stability of the countries that they seek to lead, because the populations will be much larger, much more urban, and much more wired. Uh, and that's really the analytic hook that we're trying to answer the most basic question. Why should leaders do something different? As a card-carrying member of the political science uh, profession, I will tell you that overwhelmingly leaders in office don't change. They're elected uh, for a reason or come to power for a set of reasons, and they launch on a path. And the number of times you find a leader changing paths uh, is very rare, but we argue that the demography is going to force leaders now and in the future to change. And the cost of failure for their own fortunes will be too great. And that's a very powerful argument, and it's one which we've seen get some traction, because African leaders understand the demographics now very clearly. There's no one we've presented these arguments to in sub-Saharan Africa who have said, no, you're wrong. The populations aren't going to double in the next 30 to 35 years. So that's the political argument. Because just as any good set of recommendations has to have a financial model behind it, arguments for reform have to have a political model behind it. And that's ours. Now, how it plays out in, in, in each individual country will vary, uh, but um, we, make, we make what we think is an important argument. As Greg said, um, we're very keen to argue that 
Democratic structures are best for African countries. We don't define what those demographic, what those democratic structures should be beyond the fact that all adults should be able to vote and have a reasonable expectations that votes uh, will affect who's in power. The exact structures will be up to countries themselves. But we believe the democratic argument is important precisely because we're again interested in why leaders should reform. And we believe only through democracy will these burgeoning populations be able to hold leaders accountable uh, for their decisions and for their successes or their failures. That no other system will hold the leaders accountable. And we're so concerned about what is the impetus for reform. Here, we're in the mainstream in terms of African political opinion. If you look at the polls in country after country, lead, uh, populations say they support democracy more than every other system. But there are headwinds against this argument, which should be noted. Uh, especially coming from Kigali and Addis. The examples of Rwanda and Ethiopia of admittedly high economic growth, in many cases good economic management, but of authoritarian political rule has had an increasing effect in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, with many leaders looking enviously at Paul Kagame in particular, who seems to show that you can have a well-managed capital, uh, receive significant foreign aid, oppress or kill your opponents, and uh, extend your term in office, all while the donors are quite enthusiastic about you. And that's an appealing combination of factors for many leaders. Uh, we're trying to argue against that. And as Greg said, we have some considerable evidence. But the intellectual environment in favor of democracy is changing in Africa. Uh, the book itself is made up of chapters that look at various sectors of the economy. Again, that was a decision that we made in order to make the book as accessible as possible to as many African leaders as possible. Obviously, when talking about several different countries, which do vary considerably, it would be very hard for any book to be completely relevant. What we provided, very much as the subtitle says, is a handbook that allows leaders, senior policymakers, to look through and see which sectors are most relevant to their countries and then find an analysis which hopefully will be persuasive. It's not the easiest way, frankly, to write a book uh, by sector. Uh, it's, in fact, because you don't have the anchors of individual country experience. But it's a way in which we found appeals to leaders. And as I said, there are roughly three to five recommendations at the very start of the chapter on what leaders should do. We'd be happy to just talk about that sectoral analysis and questions and answers. Two final points I'd like to make, because we're asked about it so often. One, as Greg started down this road, is about donors. What's the role of donors? We believe strongly that far too much attention has been paid to donors as a force in Africa. Um, our own view is that if countries are relatively well managed uh, with good economic governance, then yes, foreign aid can play an enabling role in promoting growth. But if that economic governance is not there, no amount of money, frankly, is going to turn the ship around, and a great deal of it will be wasted. Uh, so we view aid really as a secondary issue, uh, that it is a question not so much what the donors do, but how Africans use that money. Because the Africans will be always more vested 
and how the funds are used and what the decisions are being made than donors who are several thousand miles away and exposed to the fickles of their own domestic constituencies. Finally, we're also asked a lot about China, uh, put it out right now. I view the Chinese presence in Africa, growing presence, which you all know well, as simply the normalization of Africa on the international stage. That the dominance, even in the post-independence period, of the Western European ex-colonizers in the United States was unnatural in many ways, a product of history. And that as African countries move past 50 years, Ghana's case, 60 years of independence, uh, it is only natural that countries develop more economic ties and that the balance of economic forces on the continent, if you will, reflects the balance worldwide. So the Chinese involvement is not surprising. will undoubtedly follow the next decades by Indian, Malaysian, Korean, and many other people who will play in the international economy and thus in Africa. Is China good or bad for Africa? I think overwhelmingly good. Uh, it is just better if more people are interested in your country, interested in investing, interested in buying your goods. But it is like everything else at the end of the day, a management problem for the African countries. The Chinese want to make money. So by the way, do American and UK and French and German multinationals. Uh, and they're not necessarily regulated by some of the laws that affect uh, Western European and North American companies. But to the how efficacious Chinese investment will be in doing anything other than making money for the Chinese is at the end of the day an African question. Uh, and therefore, we think that the effect will be diverse across the continent. Those countries that manage their economies well will manage China well, will manage donors well. So we think this is an exciting time uh, to be discussing African political economy. We don't try to sugarcoat the problems at all. There are very real challenges, and the demographic uh, issues facing Africa in the next few years are close to unprecedented uh, for countries around the world. But we recognize that in the wider scene, we're living through an age where we've seen the greatest reduction of world poverty in mankind's history. Roughly a billion people lifted out of absolute poverty. So far, <coughs> overwhelmingly, in Asia with an increasing number of people, increasing proportion of the people who are absolutely poor being found in Africa. We think that those poverty reductions can be duplicated in Africa, but only if these tough decisions are taken now. I thank you again for joining with us uh, in these conversations. I know how important they are in this town and in the international community. We look forward to presenting the rest of the book to you and discussing during Q&A. Thanks again. Well, it falls to me to go last. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to be here for my first time at the Cato Institute. Um, and I thought I'd sum up by trying to bring the argument into a little bit of focus and illustrate that with a story. In the, the, the construct of the book, the first section is effectively about uh, the challenges. Uh, and as Jeff has, has talked about, the center section of the book is about sectors of the economy. But you're left with a question at the end of the second section of the book. In, in that a lot of the, art, the uh, case studies that, that we cover uh, and the theory that we cover is actually quite well known. And the question you're left with, OK, is why has this not happened? 
And so we attempted to address that in the third section of the book, which looks particularly at leadership, which President Obasanjo touched on in his uh, video, uh, and gave uh, Greg great pleasure in the leadership chapter in traveling around Africa and interviewing leaders who we thought had done one or two or many things right and trying to expose that uh, best practice. Um, but we also took quite a good look at the whole planning process that should bring the theory uh, somewhat closer to reality. Now, I actually first met Greg uh, in Afghanistan in 2006 when I was serving as the chief engineer in the headquarters of ISAF and had the responsibility for reconstruction and development across the country. And my opposite number was uh, Minister Hanif Atmar, who was the Minister for Education in Afghanistan and had been tasked by President Karzai to be the government lead on reconstruction and development. And we worked very closely over the course of the year and I came to know him extremely well. Greg was working in the headquarters as the director of the commander's um, think tank, and his first task was to take the Afghan national development strategy and plot it in time and space on a piece of paper. And he started off with an A3 sheet of paper, and by the time he finished, his entire office wall was covered in sheets of paper in an effort to put, this, uh, the, put some organization on the plan. And the mismatch with Minister Hanif Atmar's staff, of which he said he really only had 50 people who could do the work, and the complexity of the plan was obvious and stark. I, joined, I started working with the foundation uh, three years ago, and the first project I was engaged in uh, was uh, a project in Zambia when we were looking at what might be done to uh, improve economic conditions. And so we traveled fairly widely across Zambia, and we also uh, went to Malawi. Uh, and I've been brought up as a good military man, liking to do my homework. So I read a whole bunch of the national development plans. And I'm going to quote one country, but actually this is quite common. And I'll quote the figures for the Malawi Growth and Development Strategy. And this was almost flashback to Afghanistan. Because when I read the first Malawi Growth and Development Strategy, which covered the five-year period up to 2010... It was a document of 265 pages, 55 pages of which were goals. The second Malawi Growth and Development Strategy, uh, which was published in just after 2010, commented that the first Malawi Growth and Development Strategy had not really been delivered and that there had been problems. But it was a document of 271 pages with 128 pages of goals. And we are back in absolutely the same situation that I had observed in Afghanistan. And what we argue for in the book is that the pressing issue is growth and jobs. And that the, the plan, plan executed by African governments, but also supported by the international community, needs to be considerably focused. Because the consequence of the plans such as the Malawi Growth and Development Strategy is it actually gives the international community a very wide menu on which to contribute and effectively acts to disperse that donor aid that is given. Of course, the difficult bit is what to leave out. And that's when the argument gets somewhat messy. The foundation absolutely believes that it should practice what it's preach. And we've now worked uh, directly with a number of African governments to try and produce a much more focused argument.
And we set ourselves some ground rules when doing this in that we write our plan on one sheet of paper. Okay, it's a poster-sized sheet of paper, but it's one sheet of paper. And actually, it takes a remarkably long time to do because you have to have some very tough arguments about what to leave out. And what we're arguing in the book is that if, with the relatively small resources that are being applied to the continent in terms of foreign direct investment and, and donor support, that money isn't focused and spent wisely, we will not be able to meet the scale of the challenge that lies before the, uh, the continent as a result of demographic change. We hope you enjoy the book. We've tried to fill the chapters with stories of our adventures around Africa in order to make it an easier thing to read and to illustrate the points. Because as we probably all understand, finding raw data on specific African problems is quite challenging. Thank you very much. Thank you to all three of you for uh, stimulating and very interesting um, contributions. Much appreciated. Um, before I, uh, uh, before we start Q and A, uh, one question uh, from me, if I may, uh, on a subject that is becoming increasingly important um, and maybe of interest to our audience as well, and that is automatization. So, for many decades. Um, Many economic development specialists have been arguing that what Africa should do is to embrace the export-oriented, labor-intensive um, uh, economic model uh, as observed in uh, the Asian economies beginning in the 1970s. Um, uh, and, and now, with uh, automatization not only in manufacturing, but also, of course, in agriculture, um, there would appear to be a decreasing need for uh, human input, especially if that input uh, is going to be increasing as dramatically as uh, it might or it will in, in Africa. So the question, I guess, is has Africa missed its opportunity to replicate the East Asian export-oriented uh, labor-intensive model of economic development or uh, is there something left? It's an important question. Thank you, Dick. It's an important question. I think we're at the very early stages of this. I don't think we actually understand how much of a lot of factories is going to be automated. And I'll also say, this is a longer argument for another day, there's a long history of predicting the end of work over the decades, which has not come true. Jobs have changed. Now, what does uh, increasing use of robotics, AI, and the like mean for African countries? Uh, to me, it means you better be as well-managed and as flexible as possible. Because right now, no one has posed an alternative uh, to uh, becoming more integrated in the global economy. So if the opportunities are not as great as before, that's not to say you just turn around and walk away from the international economy. There's nothing else, really. Uh, but there'll still be space, but perhaps not as much space as before. So maybe not space for 48 countries to adopt this uh, policy, but you want to get to the top front of the queue. Certainly, modes of production will change at a faster rate than we've seen 
as you say, in manufacturing, but we've also seen in agriculture. That means economies and labor forces have to be as flexible as policy. I'd say it's the same, by the way, in the United States uh, as in Africa. Uh, but uh, I don't think that it means the end of opportunities, but the opportunities may well, in fact, be different. Can I just add to that? I mean, you know, you can, it's not just manufacturing, it's also, or agriculture, it's also mining. Uh, where the combination of sort of high-tech machinery um, and uh, robotics uh, um, and different techniques in mining lead to a kind of a, a much lower employment future. <coughs> but it's very interesting when doing some research for this book and running a process which we call the Zambezi Protocol because it was a process we ran in the banks of the Zambezi trying to bring mining sector across uh, uh, southern Africa together with governments. Um, it was interesting to note that the, the real reason for the fall in, say, for example, South African mining employment was not robotics or, in, or increasing capital intensity. It was actually a lack of investment in the mines themselves. So South African mining employment has fallen. I see Tony Carroll's here, and he will second this, given his involvement in the Indaba. Um, mining employment has fallen in South Africa from nearly 900,000 people in the early part of the 1980s to about uh, just around 400, just over 400,000 people today. And the reason for this is very simply is that people are not investing in South African mines. That's compounded or amplified by uh, increasing uh, mechanization. That, of course, being both a product of technological change but also of unionization. And so people employ machines because no one cares if machines get crushed or if they go on, they don't, and they don't go on strike. Um, uh, but it's also the fact that, you know, in South Africa, the last major shaft sinking that led to a deep, gold mine was in the 1980s, in fact, in, in, in uh, the early 1980s. So the absence of the sorts of political conditions and stability and economic policy has been around for a very long time. The costs are now being felt today. These are 30, 40-year year mines, sometimes even longer than that. And the reason why mining is falling as a share of South Africa's GDP is in part because of diversification, but in part because no one's investing in a sector that they can't make their money back very quickly. And actually, the, the general investment trend in Africa tends to be towards very high returns over very short periods of time to make back your investment and make a profit quickly because of a lack of overall confidence. And part of what we need to change in the continent is provide long-term assurance that investments are going to be safeguarded beyond the life of a single government. And that we've been unable to do, and that's had a very deleterious effect on investment and on employment as a result. So automation, uh, I think, uh, um, is a challenge. It's a challenge in manufacturing. We haven't seen it impact on, on uh, employment levels in some areas, and say in apparel, in in places like Lesotho, which has been a great beneficiary of the U.S. Uh, uh, Growth and uh, Opportunity Act. Um, the, the automation levels haven't really affected that uh, income bracket uh, as of yet. It potentially offers large or, or threatens large job losses in things like cereal production with mintil or no-till uh, seed and uh, agricultural uh, schemes or, or techniques. Um, but at the same time, an increase in, in uh, the acreage or hectareage of, uh, of certain types of agricultural uh, produce, uh, whether it be uh, citrus or, or grapes or, or aspects like that, offers tremendous upside in terms of, of employment creation. But that means changing policy on, on water, on land usage, on giving certain rights away. So it's a very complex answer. It's not 
automation threatens uh, employment, uh, automation threatens employment unless you respond in particular ways. Uh, and I think we've seen in mining in South Africa, automation threatens much more, uh, much less, sorry, than bad policy. Thank you. Okay, so we'll open it to Q&A now. Uh, if you would be good enough to wait until the mic gets to you, uh, kindly tell us your name and uh, who you work for or where you study. And please be kind and, uh, and considerate to other people in the audience and make your questions as short as possible and in a form of a question. So. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to the authors. And, and thank you for President Obasanjo for providing such uh, great leadership in, in many important areas. One, one uh, question that I have uh, that I've been uh, trying to figure out for the last several years is what to do better is the devolution of power and control. Like you point out that many decisions are difficult because those implementing those decisions may not be in power long enough to see them succeed. But if you go to Lagos, if you go to Cape Town, even if you go to places uh, uh, in, in, in Kenya, you're starting to see a better decision-making made at, at the local level rather than the national level. So as communities become more engaged, more involved, and more responsible for decisions pertaining to their benefit, whether it be social development or infrastructure development, uh, is it not better to allow some of those decision-making being made at a more localized level rather than the history of central decision-making, which is, I think, plagued or the, the root cause of many of the problems that you so ably illustrate in your book? Can we answer or should we take several? Oh, take a couple, well, we'll, we'll, take a couple of questions. Well, we can do that too. Um, center here. Thank you. Um, my name is Liz Fanning. I'm with Core Africa. Um, I had a question about your the role of donors and the way that you define donors as only as foreign aid. Um, you say that they're not sufficiently invested in the impact of their donations, but is there a role for African donors? Do you see their potential of developing a culture of philanthropy in Africa, and do they have a role to play in making Africa work? Okay. And let's take the question from uh, the gentleman in the back. So we'll do three and then. Thank you. My name is Yaya Fonusi with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. I would like to refer to the issue that you raised about robotics, et cetera, et cetera, and what that caused for development in Africa trying to use labor intensive. Actually, we stopped raising that issue 15 years ago. And the reason we, we don't think it was relevant to us, we said there were going to be a federation and that would be a coping mechanism and adaptation to that type of issue when the entire continent is one economy and you could have internal trade going cut across and that would take care of that. Okay, take it away. Yeah, go for it. Uh, the devolution of power I think is welcome. Uh, I think what we've seen finally is African countries beginning to move away from the models of uh, governance that they inherited from colonial powers. There wasn't much significant change uh, for several decades in many countries in terms of the models uh, that were inherited from colonial governments. Citizenship rules, for instance, still resemble uh, uh, the 
rules of French and British in the early 1960s, despite those countries have changed their citizenship uh, rules since then. Um, we argue for democracy, but we recognize that there are huge variations in even well-established democracies. The United Kingdom and Switzerland are both democracies. They seem to bear very little resemblance to each other. Uh, one has a couple of parties, the other has lots of parties. One's divided by class, the other one's divided by ethno-linguistic regions. Uh, one has devolved power, one has not. One has lots of referendums, one has Few referendums, although interesting, more interesting than in, in, the, in the past. Uh, <laughs> just catastrophic, no comments. Uh, uh, so I think uh, African countries, um, in part under the pressure of demograph uh, democratic debates and demographic change, are now experimenting with the models of governance that make most sense for them, given their conditions, as they should. And that part of this should be the devolution of power. Uh, so I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about it. There's still lots of uh, things for the center to do. Uh, role of African donors, don't see it uh, anytime soon. I do see uh, some African countries investing in other African countries, most notably uh, South Africa. Uh, but don't see much. We're all in favor of in more intra-African trade, but we have to be realistic about the size of the economy. The continental African economy is probably max, two to three percent of world domestic product. Um, even countries trading much more with each other is not going to have that much of an effect, and it's hard for me to say to ignore the other 95 plus percent of the world economy that is outside of Africa. Uh, I think that inter-African trade will increase as African countries become more diversified and they actually have things to sell to each other. If 90% plus of Zambia's exports are copper, there's only so much copper the neighbors need. Uh, if Zambia has a more diversified export profile, then it will trade more uh, with the neighbors. Uh, but that is part and parcel of the overall economic challenges. Can I just... Uh, oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to add something to do with the devolution of power and control. I mean, if, if, if as we're arguing for in the book, we're saying that you should focus government capability on where it is going to have the most effect... The flip side of that is you've, you've, you've effectively got to find another way of managing stuff that the government is not doing. And therefore, devolution is absolutely uh, one of the things we're, we're arguing for. The difficult thing is that's not the way it's really worked in the past. And I think there's going to be a difficult step from what's happening now to what we're arguing for. But the benefits are considerable. And it, it's not just in, like, government. It's, it's across... Um, business as well and we, we spent quite a long time uh, as part of this uh, study but also as part of some other projects we were doing interviewing young business entrepreneurs and it was very interesting how hamstrung they were with uh, permit applications and minor regulations uh, and yet we, are, we were advancing an argument that actually most of the jobs that can be created will be in small and medium-sized enterprises. And, and finding a way to free up that entrepreneurial spirit and harness it has got to be a major path um, to cracking the, the challenges that we lay out. Can I just add that, um, I mean, decentralisation, Tony, is, is, a, is, is great because it brings government closer to people and decision-making lines of communication are shortened and sense of responsibility is made more acute and so on and so forth. But there's real questions of funding. 
Um, so in every decentralization program across Africa, where central government tends to want to scoop more and probably is short, has a shortage of funding, you suddenly decentralize, you're providing a whole other level of government. And, and we've, even in the, in the richest economy uh, of the continent, South Africa, we found this extremely difficult. It's, uh, it's spreading limited funding and talent quite thinly across multiple levels of government. So it's a great idea in theory. Uh, in practice, it, it, it runs into a number of different problems. And you see this too in Kenya. It's more in its embryonic stages there. Whereas, of course, decentralization in, in uh, Nigeria has a different political impetus, of course, uh, um, and it becomes a, a way of, of cascading funding down to a variety of different levels. But even there, you know, there's real questions about who is responsible for what. And, and where the funding is going to come from on key projects. Take electricity in, in Nigeria, which is a calamity uh, um, from all accounts, given the lack of investment and the shortage of, of electrification across the country. Um, it has about an eighth of South Africa's, on paper, an eighth of South Africa's electricity provision uh, in Nigeria, and it has, you know, four times as many people. Uh, um, uh, and that's, that, that reflects uh, an absence of centralized funding or at least proper allocation. And, and, and de decisions about whether the state level can then slip into the funding gap are, are, are very uh, perplexing, at least currently. And I know that this is work that we're doing currently with the, uh, uh, the Lagos state government in trying to achieve some of their uh, energy targets. Uh, on the issue of, of integration, um, I mean... Again, you know, absolutely. Uh, the idea is that an economy, economies more closely integrated uh, will lead to greater trade, uh, um, and that will lead to greater wealth creation and will lower lines of communication to markets, all of the above. The problem is, is that African governments have very seldom walked the talk of regional integration. It's a fantastic expression. Um, everyone, you know, says we're going we're gonna to integrate the continent regionally, uh, continentally, we're going to integrate all these multiple regional organizations, Kamesa, SADC, the East African community, so on and so forth. The reality is, and the foundation has done a lot of root diagnostics, uh, which is not a, a form of invasive personal surgery, uh, but actually sitting on trucks and trains doing time and motion studies. Um, yeah, every time you see a border in Africa, it's a source for arbitrage. It's a source for extraction. Um, and, you know, by comparison in Europe, it's a sign that you pass at 80 kilometers an hour. And we've got to change the mentality and the practices that go with this talk and these schemes of, of regional integration. And at the heart of the problem, I believe, lies a fundamental mercantilism. So that, you know, it, it is if you're trading with me, I am losing something. Uh, and that, I'm sure, has its origins in, in extreme uh, 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 exploitation uh, historically, but we've kind of got to get over that, and I say this as a South African, we've got to get over that to be able to, to realize some of the benefit. And then finally, on the role of donors, I mean, local philanthropy is developing very slowly, but local philanthropy means very different things to, very, to different groups of, of people. There's what I would call vanity philanthropy, which is, you know, support a football team, have a pet project with your name attached to it, um, which is all about you rather than the project. And there's longer-term kind of, you know, philanthropy that goes towards building civil society, 
not just meeting shortages in government, but actually building civil society institutions to make them more res make government more responsive, uh, make a uh, government more responsible. Uh, um, that's a different type of philanthropy. That's a much braver philanthropy. You see a lot of that in my own country in South Africa. But, and this is, you know, I think uh, being blunt, uh, there's a racial division in South Africa between which type of philanthropy is supported by which grouping. Uh, and that goes back to, to apartheid. Um, and I think uh, philanthropy across the continent tends to be more of the vanity sort and attaching your name to a foundation uh, and doing stuff rather than the long-term uh, building blocks of society. But it is changing. Uh, and I think that, uh, um, you know, it's that, that change is long overdue. Okay, let's have the next round of questions. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, Chris Wyatt, the Director of African Studies at the U.S. Army War College. I think perhaps we can be forgiven if we think we've seen this movie before. You've proposed a handbook here for African leaders, so this is my question. Um, I don't think the Nigerians are surprised about population growth and the population doubling, but there's a number of leaders in Africa who are actively encouraging population growth. Uganda, Museveni, Niger, other countries, Angola. How do we change this mindset when these countries are not going to have the resources to deal with this going forward? Thank you. Lady on the right, did you have a, yeah. And we'll get to, yeah. Hi, I'm Nina. I'm a leadership advisor at IREX. Um, my question is, being that this book is intended for the African leadership and change in perspective um, strategy, how would you recommend that these leaders, or how, how do you recommend that these leaders take these books and put these things into practice. I think it's very essential to talk about practicalizing this um, and making sure that it's in the hands of those that we think are making these changes or in the positions of power. Um, and in that, how do they involve those that we're talking about, the future leaders? Um, it seems that mindset change and changes in policy also need to be directed, if they're directed at young people for the future, they should be at least included and in, in also the thinking in, the, in this book should be embedded in them and, and translated in them so they can also be thinking in this direction. Thank you. Okay. Let's take a couple of questions here. Uh, excuse me. Okay. Those two. Yes, you, sir. Yeah. That. And the gentleman behind you as well. We'll take two. Thank you. Uh, ben Leo, uh, CEO of Frame, a data analytics company. It's great to see you, gentlemen. Congratulations on the book. Uh, you continue to be extremely prolific. I wish I was as uh, prolific of a reader because uh, I have a hard time keeping up with your great content. Um, but congratulations. I want to um, ground uh, uh, some of the content that you guys have been talking about in some country examples through a hypothetical. So I know that you've done a lot of engagements both recently and over time with different governments across the continent. If you had, if, if you had to invest in an asset, a 15-year asset that you couldn't sell, a bond, a mine, a, or anything, or another hypothetical, if you had to hire one person 15 years out from a country and you couldn't choose who it was, it was some random person, what is your hit list of three to five countries that you find the most promising or you're the most bullish on based upon your experience and how they match up to the recipe that you lay out in your book? Before, uh, just in front of him. That's 
Hi, I'm um, David Smith of The Guardian. Um, I um, just what do you think of, uh, do, do African leaders believe they still have a um, reliable partner in the US um, since the election? Have you been able to discern an approach from the, the Trump administration? And ultimately, is it going to be a, a help or a hindrance compared to the Obama administration? Okay, so we'll get one more round. So please go ahead. You start with the US question, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's, well, that's me. When did you stop beating your wife question? <laughs> hey, look, there's, there's, there's no policy to discern yet. Uh, I, I don't think that's a controversial statement, and uh, I, I don't think that anyone in the administration uh, would argue otherwise. Senior posts are vacant, um, and uh, more generally, there is uh, only the bare fleshing out of an overall foreign policy doctrine, much less how it will apply to Africa. So uh, I don't, uh, <clears throat> I think the answer is at the moment, unknown. Look, I mean, Africa has not been very political. Uh, you know, Clinton was arguably the freest trader. Uh, George W. Bush increased uh, foreign aid the most. Uh, and Obama was noted in good part for how many different military operations he began in so many different countries in Africa. So it's hard <coughs> to align that with any domestic notion of politics. Uh, so I think it's TBD uh, at the moment in terms of what the U.S. partnership uh, will look like uh, with Africa. And I think that's not, that's not an African issue. That's a more general issue of uh, what's the overall framework of the administration's foreign policy going to be. So that would be my, my answer. Um, in terms of, I'll just take the um, how to change African leaders' opinions about population growth. You're not going to change those guys' uh, opinion, and the, the emphasis is in many ways on guys. But I think uh, a couple of things will happen. First, to the extent that some countries are going to be able to reduce the number of live births per woman, uh, which will happen in good part by providing more girls and young women with education and greater accessibility to contraception, uh, and over time, and it will be over time, uh, that the results become evident, uh, those results will be known throughout Africa and people will learn. Because if there's one thing I've learned over time is African leaders pay exquisite attention to what's going on in other countries. And uh, to the extent that some countries begin to uh, benefit from a decelerating population growth rate, even if the total population continues to grow, that'll be advantageous. Second, I'm not sure that the leaders' views on this are the last word. Uh, that uh, optimal family size is a very complex set of issues determined in part by location, where you are in the economy, where you live, uh, and again, the accessibility of birth control. And a lot of technological developments on the last part. And I'm not sure, irrespective of what leaders say, people won't begin to make different decisions. But it, it will be hard. Let me pass on the other questions to my colleagues. I mean, I, I would pick up on that question. I, I would actually challenge your premise a little bit. <clears throat> I haven't spoken to the president of Uganda, but we have spoken to the president of Niger uh, and to the president of Mali. And the president of Niger had all those facts and figures right there. He knew the problem and he knew what needed to be done. So, you know, I actually think 
um, leaders know that, know that. And, and if you want another case study is Malawi. We had quite an interesting discussion when we were visiting Malawi. Because land passes down in families, the parcels of lands that are being passed down are smaller. <clears throat> and people are beginning to see the social effects of that in the south of the country. So you know, I, th I think, actually, the leaders get it. There's a difference between getting it and devising a plan to sort it out. But I would come back to you on that uh, issue. In terms of reaching leaders, I mean, we have, uh, and young people, <clears throat> we have made a huge effort to get out and about. We've been around 10 countries in West Africa. We've been around Southern Africa. We've still got East Africa to go. We, as part of this tour, we went to Morocco and Tunisia. And we have talked to leaders. We've given them copies of the books. We've given them to their cabinets. Uh, and we've, we've done a lot of media engagement. So, you know, we've really tried hard, I would say. Um, but we've done more than that. Uh, we've tried to engage with uh, the, 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 the youth of Africa. And in doing so, we have produced lots of videos. Uh, Greg and a South African singer called Robin Ald have produced a song called Mama Africa, which you can see on the Brenthurst website. And we've tried all sorts of different ways to get people to engage in the debate. Uh, and actually, what we can see from our stats on social media is we have reached huge, uh, a huge chunk of, of African population that we've, we've really not touched before. Uh, Greg. I'll be left the easy questions. Um, and just to add to what Dickie says, I mean, one of the things we've done too is to uh, engage with schools uh, and uh, spend a lot of time speaking to school kids, put them in the driving seat of, of understanding that this is the problems we are identifying in a sense going to become their problems. Uh, and they're going to have to solve in 35 years' time when they become decision makers. So we've tried as, as, as best as possible to be able to empower people in this, in this process. I just want to add to the little anecdote on Niger. I mean, it was very interesting meeting the Niger president um, because he not only knew exactly what the country's situation was, and Niger is quite different. Because across West Africa, most countries are experiencing a tenfold increase in population from 1960 to 2050. So, you know, Nigeria was 45 million at independence and it's going to 410, 415 million by 2050. Uh, but Niger is unusual because it's, got, it's, it's going to experience a 20-fold increase in population numbers from 1960 to 2050. So it was 3.8 million in 1960. It's 23 million now, and it's going to 68 million projected in 2050. And he said, no, 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 it's not going to 68 million. It's going to 75 million, according to our estimates. Uh, and then he, he rattled out all the statistics, you know, live births per woman, 7.9 people, blah, blah, blah. And then all the reasons behind this, traditional systems, value systems, culture. He disputed the role of religion. We had a long argument or discussion about that. He knew exactly... Uh, and he had all the kind of pressure points at his disposal in terms of what they were trying to change. It's, it's just going to take a long time. And, of course, the critical part of changing that demographic curve or, or trajectory is um, wealth. When people become richer and, and fewer people die uh, and life expectancy improves, there is a, a natural point, and that's historically, uh, where, where birth rates come down. Uh, but it's, it's, gonna, it's a longer process of education. It's a process, as Jeffrey points out, also of empowerment. Um, Ben's very good question. Um, what asset? Yes, that's a difficult one to answer because, of course, you know, I'm damned if I do and <coughs> damned if I don't. I mean, I think 
smaller countries have done better in Africa. Smaller the population size, easier to extend governance, um, generally done better. Uh, um, uh, smaller populations, large territories have done very well because lots small numbers of people are rattled around in big territories, Botswana and Namibia. But if I just had to pick three uh, uh, completely different countervailing examples, I think Ghana, because uh, I think this leadership has a real sense of of trying to change the boom and bust approach to and 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 extractive uh, crisis management approach of, of the of the economic management. I think Namibia because it's one of the unsung kind of success stories of of Africa, uh, more or less constantly well managed. Um, and this is why I was putting bets on because uh, you asked for this. And then I'd have to sort of take a, a wild swing and say Ethiopia, uh, in part because I did the interview with Haile Miriam. Um, and it was a very tough interview because as if you, when you read the book, I mean, I, I didn't shy away from the, the very tough questions about democratization, about what his plans were, and his explanation of them being on this process of <coughs> increasing, but like Singaporean-esque sort of uh, people say in the economy and having to start from one place and go to another, I think was, was impressive. Uh, but we're right, you know, it potentially could be upended by the, the failure to democratize and to give people more say in the system as, current, as subsequent events have shown uh, around various protests. And then, you know, I'd sort of put two on the watch list if I was uh, to add to the three. And I think Kenya, because I think what you've seen in Kenya is a, is, is a certain maturity now in the political system, whether they can carry this off in the next, what now, 40 days, We'll have to wait and see. Big economy, gateway to East Africa, extremely well positioned. And then, of course, my own country, uh, um, simply because it is so developed. Uh, uh, it has always a history of snatching uh, victory from the jaws of defeat, which it normally has engineered entirely itself uh, um, uh, and wobbling or muddling through, um, clearly underperforming relative to potential. Um, but, you know, again, driven by, by politics. And I think what we're seeing in South Africa is a, a very rapid maturation of the political uh, scene uh, in a short period of time, by no means out of the woods. And we may go deeper into them before we get out of them. But I, I would certainly put that on a watch list. I could just add one. Um, the reason we had the book translated into Arabic is, of course, of North Africa. And we haven't really touched on those in, in terms of countries, but we did uh, quite a bit of work last year in Morocco, and actually I think there's an enormous amount to learn from what's gone on in Morocco, uh, and Tunisia, I would add to that. Um, can't resist but follow up on something that uh, Jeff said, and, and also Greg. Um, Jeff, you mentioned that African leaders follow uh, what others do and what succeeds. Um, yet Botswana, which uh, you, Greg, mentioned, I mean, one of the most successful countries, not just Africa, but the world between 1975 and 2005, it was an economy which was growing at a faster pace than than, than China. So my question is, why uh, has anybody learned any lessons from Botswana? What are those lessons, and does anybody care? Because I don't really see Botswana referenced as a uh, as an example for other African countries to follow anywhere. Well, we interview uh, Ian Karma, uh, or I did, um, and in fact Jeffrey and I. <laughs> Uh, established the Botswana Economic Advisory Council back in 2005. So it's a country that we have engaged with a great deal uh, uh, and, 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 and rather frustratingly on its economic diversification path. I think Botswana, and all credit to it, made a, uh, one very good bet and, and had one very good experience in diamonds. 
Um, I think it's battled to, to diversify away from diamonds. Its attempts to do so have been compounded or, or made more difficult by its level of dependency, by all sorts of uh, um, structural reasons around the overvaluation of the pooler as a result of this, this is a classic Dutch disease phenomena. Um, and by the fact, as a Costa Rican colleague of ours put it, he said the problem with the Botswanans is they wake up in the morning and their stomachs are half full. So, you know, to fill them up the second half is kind of hard work, you know? Why bother to do it? And in fact, in the book, uh, it's probably the part you haven't got to, Marion. Uh, I ask, um, uh, I ask uh, uh, Ian Kalmer, I said, you know, we were part of the Botswana Economic Advisory Council. What went wrong? Why didn't you diversify? And he defended his position, uh, expectedly. Uh, um, but I think that uh, for the reasons I've identified, uh, the lack of will, uh, um, they, they haven't been able to get off diamonds. But, and I have to say this, all credit to them because, you know, had diamonds proved to be their, their reason for their failure, everyone has said, well, it's because of diamonds. So they, in a sense, have done very well, but they haven't perhaps translated that into other areas of the economy. I think in terms of the demonstration effect, it's just too small, uh, which is too easy to dismiss. Look, today, there are 2.1 million people. Um, you, you, you go to the Lego state governor and say, learn from the lessons of Nigeria. And what is the governor going to say? You know, uh, uh, my, my place is ten times as big as that. Uh, so I think, you know, Mauritius also made a lot of great decisions, and again, just dismissed, uh, uh, frankly, because just doesn't speak in terms of scale uh, to what African leaders are facing. Not only because of a small population, but because it's actually a population that's pretty concentrated in two places. So I think it's easy enough to dismiss. But I agree with Greg completely. Um, they could have gone a different way and squandered the diamond uh, endowment, and they didn't. Uh, and it took uh, smart decisions, uh, some decisions which went against the grain of thinking, uh, especially the cooperation with De Beers at a time in the 60s and 70s when many of its even neighbors were nationalizing assets uh, and trying to push multinationals out. So I think they've done well by their own lights, but I, I just... I think Africa is waiting for a country of scale, uh, by which I mean in the kind of 18 to 40 million people range uh, to break out, and we haven't seen that yet. Okay. Well, um, that's all the time we have for. Uh, I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank to all of you. Uh, please join us outside uh, for uh, drinks and uh, follow-up conversation, and please don't forget to buy the book. Thank you very much.